Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You may be seated. We are focusing on just one verse today, in part because this verse is certainly rich enough for us to spend our sermon time on it. But we're also focusing on this one verse because it, it touches on the theme that we have seen throughout the epistle, the letter to the Philippians, and that is the theme of joy. Words joy or rejoice are found 16 times in this brief letter. And as you have already seen, as we've been reading the book and preaching through it, this, this topic of joy has come up in, in different contexts many times. We know that the Apostle Paul himself is, is in prison for preaching the gospel and is unsure about his future. He's hoping that he would be released and be able to see the Philippians again, but he's not sure that that's how the sentencing gonna going to go. And so he is rejoicing even in prison. And as he's writing to the Philippians who too are experiencing persecution, he's encouraging them to rejoice in their difficult circumstances. So today we tackle this theme of joy head on, focus on it, and hopefully to allow us to have a, a good picture on the role of joy in the Christian life. Now, I love preaching on joy. You've heard me preach on joy before, certainly. I find this topic very encouraging and motivating and uplifting personally. And yet, I also find it very convicting. I think I have mentioned before that I track my own spiritual growth in part by my capacity to express joy and laughter, singing, or dancing. And so for me, for many years I have, thank you, Diane, I have been, uh, for many years I have been uh, a self-confessed uh, Christian eudaimonist. You probably don't know that word. It's just a fancy word to, to, to say I'm a, I'm a pursuer of pleasure. I'm a pursuer of joy. I have, I have seen myself as a Christian uh, as part of that, that theological tradition that prioritizes joy and connects joy with God's glory, and I'd be happy to talk more to you about that. But as I've looked at my life through that lens, having committed myself many years ago to pursue joy, I've also found that, that I've really struggled with that, and perhaps my greatest sin is joylessness. And I can think of specific times in my life where I have not been joyful and have distorted the picture of Christ as others looked at my life at that time. So having disclosed to you that joy in Christ is my greatest pursuit and yet also my greatest struggle in life, I want us to get into our text because this text and some others in the Bible, but specifically this one, gives us a foundation for understanding of that pursuit and that struggle. So let me look at Christian joy uh, in three aspects, three points this morning. I'd like to first look at it as the Christian joy and its importance to us, so the importance of Christian joy. Secondly, let us look at it uh, in the sense of its nature. So what is the nature of Christian joy? And finally, let's consider its practice. So the importance of Christian joy, the nature of Christian joy, and the practice 
of Christian joy. So that's our simple outline today. Let me begin by telling you the story of, I had a friend, I have a friend whose name is Art, and Art told me that he and his girlfriend at the time uh, played a little game as they were worshiping on one particular Sunday morning at church. They were competing to see whose name would be mentioned more at church that day. Now, his name was Art. His girlfriend's name was Joy. In a traditional hymn singing church that uses the King James Bible, Art had a real chance, I think, <clears throat> because of Thou Art and, and other hymns and, and, and passages in Scripture. But if you take them out of a traditional church setting, Joy wins every time. Because you can't read the Bible any, any length of a biblical passage without stumbling onto that word. You can't really sing many songs, hymns or not, that don't mention our joy in Christ. You can barely hear a prayer that doesn't express our joy in Christ. Because Christianity, fundamentally, is a joyful religion. It is a joyful religion. Now, some Christians have tried to change that and make it less joyful, make joy as, as some sort of an embarrassing thing. And yet, biblically, Christianity is a joyful religion. Joy is not just a natural quality of our faith, sort of a side effect. It is actually a divine command. And we see that in our text this morning. Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So important and urgent is this command that Paul repeats it again. For a biblical Christian, joy is not just something that happens to us, and we would say it would be nice to experience joy if it happens. Joy is a divine command. It's a commandment of our Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And this is hardly the only place where joy is commanded. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 echoes our text, rejoice always. Joy is not an option for a Christian. It is an imperative for every believer. God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to be happy, really happy eternally happy, deep in your soul happy. And God is committed to your ultimate happiness and joy. This is what God is doing in your life right now, today, this hour. He is driving you to happiness and joy. And He's so committed to that pursuit in your life that He will introduce difficulty and pain into your life so that you would be joyful. You may have heard Jeremy Taylor's famous quote, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. It's a haunting quote. But God is so committed to your happiness that He is willing to introduce all sorts of difficulties into your life so that you would be happier. And if you think of it from a parent's perspective, and those of us who are parents, I think we understand the dynamic. Every parent ultimately wants their child to be happy. That's what we want. And so we know, as parents, because we're wiser and we're older and we used to be kids, we understand 
how it works, and we know that our children will not know happiness unless we introduce discipline, instruction, and help. And so a good parent guides their child, disciplines their child, deliberately restricts their freedom, and deliberately challenges their will, all in the pursuit of that child's happiness and joy. I think this is a very good analogy for what God does with us. He is a parent that wants us to be happy. In fact, he commands us to be happy, as we have seen. And yet it is he who defines what happiness is and how it is achieved, just like any good parent. No good parent leaves their child to figure out what it means to be happy. No, we teach them because they can't figure it out. And every good parent creates structures and disciplines and difficulties and, yes, pain in the life of their child so that that child would grow in happiness and joy. This is what God does with us. He commands us to be happy, and he works for our happiness. But why is it so important to God that we would be happy? The answer is very simple, because God is a happy God. He is a perfectly fulfilled being. God only does what pleases him. He has always been joyful in the love of the Trinity. And he made us in his image. To be joyful like him, to be joyful in his love, this is how we're made. This is what our original design is, is to be happy in him, to be fully engaged in his love and to be joyful. When we sinned in the garden... It was our attempt to be happy without God, to create our own happiness, just like a child who says, I won't eat a meal you've prepared for me. I'm going to go to my stash of candy and fill myself with that, and I will be happy. That's what we did in the garden. We've rejected God's idea of happiness, which is actually the right idea of happiness. We've created our own, we've pursued it, and now humanity has been functioning in great misery since that day. And so God's redemptive mission is to restore our joy in Him. In Christ, we are called to pursue happiness, to rejoice in the Lord, to pursue real happiness in God's love once again. And God even sends His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of joy, to assist us in obeying His command to be joyful. God is happy. God wants us to be happy. He sacrificed his own son, his only son whom he loves and delights in so that we would be happy. This is how seriously God takes our happiness. The Lord's great commandment, be holy for I am holy, must include the command, be happy for I am happy, or be joyful for I am joyful. God's holiness... <clears throat> is simply God's godness. That's his nature. To say that God is holy is to say that God is God. And so when God says, be like me, of course he means that we would also be happy like him, that we would be joyful like him. God is a happy God. Satan, on the other hand, is incapable of joy. It is because he has set himself up against God and thus he cut himself off from the source of all joy. C.S. Lewis, in, in his great book, The Screwtape Letters, 
has a senior devil say this about the power of wonder-inspired laughter. He says, laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult, insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. This is how, how the devil sees joy. It's an insult. It's mocking to him if we are joyful, and of course it is. And so one of devil's strategies is to suppress our joy, is to get us to stop laughing, to stop, stop singing, to stop dancing, because he knows if he can convince us that laughter is bad, if, joy, if he can convince us that joy is bad, we're just a step further away from God's love. If joy is so important to God that he commands us to rejoice, my question to us this morning, are you being obedient to that command? It's very important to God. Is it important to you? Are you intentionally pursuing Christian joy? Are you fighting joylessness and confessing joylessness as a sin, as a great sin? Do you need to be convicted this morning like me? Do you need to be convicted of your joylessness? Do you need to reaffirm your desire to delight in the Lord? Do you finally need this morning to take joy seriously? Very clear, there's a command. God says, rejoice Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, lest we miss that command. He says it again, and so we are to take it seriously this morning. Now, so far, I've used words like joy and happiness and pleasure interchangeably. I'm not drawing distinctions in this sermon. But of course, all these words come with connotations, they come with baggage, they come with their own experiences of that, and so we need to explore the nature of of joy as it is described in Scripture. Because we're not talking about any joy or any pleasure or any happiness. We are talking about a distinctly Christian idea and experience of joy. You can tickle yourself until you pee your pants, and that would not be the kind of joy that I'm talking about. You can create things, you can create sensations, but that is not the same as the biblical idea of joy. So let me explore a little bit here what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Well, clearly, what Paul says here is that this joy is in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Alexander McLaren, uh, 1800s preacher, calls this joy a God-fixed joy. It's a God-fixed joy. In other words, the sphere of our joyfulness is in Christ, is in the Lord. As redeemed people, we are in Christ, and so we must rejoice in Christ. Joy, in the Christian sense, is our conscious awareness and experience of all the benefits that we already possess by grace in Christ. That's my definition for this morning. Let me say this again. Joy in the Christian sense is our conscious awareness and experience of all the benefits that we already possess by faith in Christ. 
Now let me take you to Ephesians 1. And, and if, you, if you would, please go to that passage in your Bibles. I love going to Ephesians 1 because it lists what we have in Christ. It gives us an expression of who we really are. Whether we forget it or ignore it or resist it or neglect it, this passage tells us who we really are in Christ, what we really possess in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3 begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, listen carefully, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are a believer this morning, you possess all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ already. You've been given it by grace. You have it. It is yours. Nobody can take it away from you. All these spiritual blessings are yours already. That's not in question. The only thing is in question is whether you know it, whether you are aware of it, whether you experience it now. But it's a fact that you have it because God already did it. He gave it to you. And if you're in Christ, you have everything that is in Christ. And so you have all these blessings already. And then Paul goes on to list it. This is a beautiful passage just to read through and just understand what we actually have, what these spiritual blessings are. And he says that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, before you were created. God decided to love you, and God decided to bless you in Christ. This is God's doing. This is His will. This is His purpose for you. He goes on to say that we are loved by God. One of the spiritual blessings in Christ that is ours completely is His love. His love cannot change for us. It doesn't run out. He doesn't get frustrated with us and stops loving us. This is an eternal love that He has committed to us. We are being adopted into God's family. We have been adopted into God's family. That's a blessing that has been given to us in Christ because Christ is God's Son. We are God's children. If you're in Christ, you share in His Sonship. We have been redeemed with Christ's blood. Our sins have been paid for. We have been bought back out of slavery, much like the missionary couple I was talking about where they, they bring people out of slavery and into freedom. So Christ has done that for us, having paid the price, the ransom of His blood, His life. He brought us out. And so now we are free. We are not slaves anymore. We have been ransomed. We have been redeemed with His blood. We have been forgiven all our sins. So we walk in forgiveness now. God has lavished on us the riches of His grace. I'm simply just going through the passage here. I'm not actually adding hardly any commentary. I'm just telling you what the passage says. That God has lavished on us the riches of His grace. It's not just a little bit. Not just part of His budget. This is the riches of His grace that have been lavished on us, poured out on us, just given to us, dumped on us. God has revealed the mystery of His will to us. He has not kept Himself secret or hidden, but He has revealed Himself to us. Even the mystery of His will is no longer a mystery to us. God gave us an inheritance. 
which means that everything that belongs to Christ, because we are in Christ, now belongs to us. And we will receive everything. It is ours by title. It is ours by God's decree now. And there will be a time in the restored creation when the creation will belong to us. And we will rule over it with Christ. That is our destiny and that is our future. And God says that he guarantees that, the reception of that inheritance, by giving us the Holy Spirit who becomes a seal. Meaning that the Holy Spirit himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, his presence with us now, is that guarantee, it's that seal, is that signature on the deed of our inheritance. So joy, then, is the conscious awareness and the actual experience of what we have already been given in Christ by grace. So all these things that are listed here and many, many more are ours in Christ, and as we experience it, as we are consciously aware of that, that that's what makes us happy. And that is plenty to make me happy in any circumstance. If I'm consciously aware of that and I'm bringing my heart in alliance with that and I'm experiencing that even now. Joy, by biblical definition, is always more than an emotion. But it's not less than emotion. You see, it's really important to to not hide joy and say, well, I am joyful really deep inside. Nobody can tell but I'm really joyful very deep inside. Sometimes God can't even tell how joyful I am. That is not a biblical definition of joy. Joy is an emotion, of course it is. And it comes out. It spills over. It must do that if we feel that, if it is our real experience. However, it's more than that. It's more than the emotion of joy. Perhaps the best way to describe Christian joy is a disposition. It's a disposition. It's a certain posture towards life. It usually includes the emotion of joyfulness, but it is also able to accommodate other emotions as well. And often in this life, in this broken world, dealing with our own sins, our joyfulness goes alongside other things that we experience. And we have to be very careful not to teach that if you are a joyful Christian, you are only experiencing joy. No. The biblical record tells us that you can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's how Paul described his experience in 2 Corinthians 6.10, that he was sorrowful, he was sad, yet also always rejoicing. That is possible for a Christian. In fact, That is pretty normal for a Christian. Joyful Christians feel pain and grief and disappointment and frustration and disillusionment that doesn't negate our joy. In fact, those are normal responses to certain circumstances, and we must feel that. To not feel that would be inhuman. Joyful Christians can even wrestle with pretty deep darkness. However, Underneath it all, alongside it all, even bursting through it all, even enveloping and often transforming it all, is the joy of the Lord. Now listen to one commentator. He says, joy is an understanding of existence 
that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with creative submission events which bring delight or dismay, because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. Do you see how the Christian joy breaks through circumstances? It doesn't ignore circumstances. It is absolutely normal to be happy about certain things that happen to you or to be sad about certain things that happen to you. But we don't stop looking at that. We look beyond that. We look through it and we see the God who's, who's behind it and above it. Christian joy then becomes the filter through which we evaluate our circumstances. We can put them in perspective. If I remember that I, am, I have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places, that it is mine by faith, my perspective on a level of pain, a level of frustration, a level of disillusionment in my life changes. Christian joy becomes the filter through which we assess all our emotions. We put them in perspective so we can be sad and joyful at the same time. We can be frustrated and yet hopeful. We can feel pain and yet at the same time experience pleasure in the Lord. Christian joy is the determination to live in accordance with with what is true of us in Christ. And not to give in to the lies of the flesh, the world, and the devil. As Karl Barth put it, joy is a defiant nevertheless. It's a defiant nevertheless against fear and resentment and anxiety and hopelessness that otherwise might overwhelm the believer. Now, do you understand what the Bible means when it commands us to rejoice in the Lord? Are you committed to the pursuit of this kind of joy? This is a very important decision for a Christian to decide to pursue this kind of joy. And so let me talk lastly about the practice of it. So what does it look like to pursue this Christian joy? Because joy is not manufactured by ourselves, but it is experienced by grace. There are no techniques. I can't give you three steps. I can't give you seven things to do. That's not how joy works. But I can give you principles I can show you how from the book of Philippians specifically, Paul teaches us how we are to pursue it. What, what are we to avoid? How do we set ourselves up to experience joy? And so I have three of those principles. I believe that if we follow these three principles, we will be able to rejoice in the Lord always, which is part of this command. Always, in any circumstance, in all sorts of circumstances. You will also notice that each of these principles is connected to Paul's, one of Paul's prominent themes in the letter. Namely, he's teaching against legalism. He's teaching against hedonism or the pursuit of pleasure. And then also his pursuit of knowing Christ as his great ambition. So let me work through these, okay? 
So number one, how do we practice Christian joy? Number one, we are to reject the joylessness of legalism. We are to reject the joylessness of legalism. You might remember Paul's warning not to listen to those who promote circumcision and obedience to the Jewish law as the way to gain righteousness before God. This is in Philippians 3, and specifically verse 2. You might also remember, and I made that point when we preached on that passage, that this warning comes right after Paul's exhortation to rejoice in the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 3. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, and now he says, be careful with the mutilators of the flesh and the evildoers and the dogs, avoid them. Why? Because they will threaten your joy. That's the point. Legalism is an assault on joy. The problem with legalism, among some other problems, but one of the problems is that it takes joy away from a Christian. And so we ought to be very careful to keep it in check, to oppose it, to reject it, to expose it, because it's a real threat to the joy of the Christian. Trusting in your own righteousness based on your own accomplishments is a threat to your Christian joy. Now, I mentioned in the sermon on that passage a few weeks ago that legalism destroys joy, and I said that I have never heard a legalist belly laugh. And belly laughs, in my book, are an essential practice of a gospel-believing Christian. If you can't really laugh, and I mean laugh to the point that you sort of let go of yourself, right? To the point where it's embarrassing to other people to watch you laugh. If you can't do that, I'm going to encourage you to look at your heart. Because maybe, just maybe, legalism has a little bit of a hold on you. I think there's a real connection between just this outward expression of emotion, like laughter or dancing, and legalism. In fact, it is not unusual for legalistic churches to forbid dancing, to forbid outward expression of emotion. Legalist is suspicious of that because in that emotion, in dancing, in belly laughs, we let go of ourselves and we stop controlling ourselves. But the whole point of legalism is to control yourself. But we as gospel-believing Christians say, I don't want to control myself. I want Christ to control me. I want the Holy Spirit to control me. I don't want to be the person in charge. Legalism, though it's often dressed in religious clothing, promotes hellish austerity. An attempt to become more serious about holiness, which is at the core of legalism, it starts well in many cases, they want to be more holy. They want to help people pursue holiness to a greater degree in a more serious way. But by doing that, they often miss the point of holiness. And the point of holiness is happiness. The reason God calls us to be holy is so that we would be happy. To practice Christian joy, we must continually and repeatedly reject the temptation to trust in ourselves, to control ourselves, as if we could earn God's love by our own achievements. The gospel says that we are accepted with God 
based on the achievements of our Savior, not our own. Our Savior who died and rose in our place. And so our joy comes from outside. It doesn't come from within. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements for righteousness on our behalf. And by faith in this miracle of the gospel, by faith we simply accept his righteousness as our own. And so God accepts us as he accepts his own son. And because we do that, we can now live in deep humility and deep gratitude and yes, in deep joy. It is grace that produces joy, not self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is incapable of making us laugh. But grace, grace makes even the most dignified of us to sit down on the floor and laugh and to go dance and make a fool out of ourselves and, and be okay with that. That's what grace does to us. And so the struggle of the Christian life is to prioritize grace, is to go to grace, is to be fed by grace, is to base our behavior on grace and not on our self-righteous efforts. Let me quote from Dane Ortland from the book that we've been reading. Some of us have been reading this book during the summer as a church, Gentle and Lowly. Dane says, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it, for a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it, for your union with Christ or from it. The battle of the Christian life, he goes on to say, is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. I will testify from my own life, that is the main struggle. Am I going to live as an orphan wanting to get Christ's approval for me, longing for his love, trying to earn it, trying to do something great for him so he would finally love me? Or am I going to live in full confidence that I already have his smile, I have his heart, I'm part of his family, I've been brought in by the sacrifice of Jesus? And because of the overflowing fullness of Christ's gracious heart, our hearts too can overflow with joy. Do not fall prey to legalism. It will steal your joy. Number two. So the first principle is, is reject the joylessness of legalism. Number two, second principle, is do not settle for lesser joys. Do not settle for lesser joys. Now this principle goes along with Paul's warning not to follow those whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things. And this is from Philippians 3, verse 19. This is the danger that is opposite of legalism. I'm going to call it hedonism. I don't know if that's the best word, but hedonism just means pursuit of pleasure. 
And so Paul has condemned these teachers, condemned these Christians who have said, well, if I just want to do something, I'll just do something. If I feel like doing it, I'll just do it. Grace covers all. And so these people live by instinct. They live by simply pursuing their hearts, pursuing their flesh, doing what brings them immediate pleasure. And many of them end up falling into grievous sins because the Spirit no longer controls the flesh. Now the difference between this kind of sinful hedonism and pursuit of pleasure and Christian joy, or as John Piper calls it, Christian hedonism, is how we prioritize different kinds of pleasure. I want to be very clear that we are called to enjoy all God's gifts, including food and and sex and sleep. But we are not to prioritize the flesh over the spirit. Or to put it differently, we are not to settle for lesser joys at the expense of greater joys. Now, you probably know this quote from C.S. Lewis, his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. I think he is completely right to help us understand this dynamic. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is a classic understanding of how our desires work. Our problem is not so much that we desire too much. Our problem is that we satisfy our desires in things that are too little. And so we go for the certain pleasures that are immediately available to us, and thus we forego the greater pleasures that await us. Mature Christians, this is one of the signs of maturity for a Christian, they understand that our lesser pleasure is to be put in the proper context. So a mature Christian is able to feast and enjoy a meal without thinking about the cost of that meal, without thinking about overeating. We can enjoy that meal fully. That's part of a Christian, distinctly Christian understanding of how to eat. And yet that same Christian is also able to fast and is able to say, not now, Today, I need to fast to pursue greater pleasures because food itself cannot get me there. I need to do other stuff. I need to pursue other disciplines. I will enjoy food, but I will also fast, so I will break free from that. 
We praise sexual pleasure in marriage. Rightly so. We ought to do that. That's a biblical teaching. And yet, we reserve it for marriage only. Now, do you see what we're doing? We're putting a lesser joy, a lesser pleasure in the right context. We're saying it belongs here. It is to be enjoyed. But there are greater things at play. There are greater pleasures at play. And so we are not to be a slave to this. We consider Sunday afternoon naps almost sacred as Christians. And yet we also organize all-night prayer vigils. How does that work for a Christian? For a mature Christian, we're able to say, I will take a nap for the glory of God. And at the same time, I will not sleep tonight because I need to pray. We understand that it's okay to give up lesser pleasures for the sake of greater pleasures. Those who do not abide by the hierarchy of pleasures can be easily misled to prioritize the flesh over the spirit and eventually give in to sinful pleasures. In Hebrews eleven twenty four and following verses, we read, this is about Moses and, and how he made decisions. This is very insightful for us. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's an example for us. Moses prioritized pleasures. Moses prioritized different kinds of joy. And so he realized that to be mistreated for Christ's sake is a greater treasure because he gets Christ out of it than to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. He knew that there's a greater treasure for which other treasures can be given up. You see, that is the Christian understanding of desire, pleasure, and joy. Too many of us settle for lesser joys and lesser pleasures. And we forego and we forsake greater things that God has for us. Moses was a Christian hedonist. He was one who pursued greater pleasures at the expense of lesser pleasures. He knew what his real treasure was. Do you? The way to conquer the appeal of the flesh and to resist temptation is to discover and hold on to the greater joys of God himself. Now listen to John Piper. You knew I was going to quote Piper at some point during the sermon. Here it is. Piper says in his introduction to the second edition of his book, Desiring God, he says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of the superior satisfaction in God. God remains gloriously all-satisfying. The human heart remains a ceaseless factory of desires. Sin remains powerfully and suicidally appealing. The battle remains. Where will we drink? Where will we feast? Feast on God. Have you settled for lesser joys, even the fleeting pleasures of sin? You are missing out on the greater joys of God.
Our, let, me, let me just be practical here, okay, for just one minute. The way to conquer these appeals to the flesh, the way to put these lesser joys in the right perspective is to commit to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. This is how it works. We need a harness to help us walk. We need something to, to sustain us, to uplift us, to limit us, to help us prioritize greater joys over lesser joys. Let me give you an example. When my daughter Polly, who's undoubtedly watching right now and screaming because I mentioned her in the sermon, my daughter Polly, when she was about, I think it was about three years old, and, and she has special needs, and, is if, and if you've raised a child with special needs, you know there's a lot of obstacles you have to overcome, and some of them are very difficult. You have to set up other structures and disciplines for the child to learn to do things that are really good for them. So Polly had a hard time walking, and we had to, we actually, our therapist brought this, and I think I may have shared this example before, they brought this scary-looking, you know, construction made out of wood and steel and leather, you know, that combination usually looks scary to me. And, and it was one of those things, it was a stand in which she would be strapped on, her legs would be strapped on, her body would be strapped on, so she would remain in the upright position, sometimes for hours. Why? Her muscles needed to be strengthened. She couldn't walk. She couldn't walk on her own, so she needed that harness, she needed that structure, she needed, to put it in the Christian world, uh, to, in the Christian analogy, she needed the disciplines of the faith to help her reach the greater joys. The greater joy was walking. It was too easy to settle for the lesser joy of sitting around or crawling. But to get to the greater joy of walking, she needed that very restrictive, hours on end kind of therapy. This is the same in the life of a Christian. We settle for the lesser joys. But God gives us structures to allow us to get stronger so we can enjoy the greater joys of His presence. So things like daily Bible reading, it is restrictive. Of course it is. You have to organize your schedule around it. Things like regular times of prayer throughout the day. Yes, that's part of your schedule. It's, you have to organize your life around that. Uh, Sunday morning church attendance, serving others, sharing the gospel with others, uh, singing songs, knowing what songs to sing, those kinds of things are spiritual disciplines to give you a harness so you can walk. And walking is worth it. And so God gives us these means. So the way to prioritize greater joys over lesser joys is to commit to the practice of the spiritual disciplines. Now, and finally, my last point here, and I'll, I'll finish the third principle of the practice of joy is to pursue the source of joy himself. Is to pursue the source of joy himself. I've, I've danced around it. I'm going to mention it very specifically and directly. Now, you may remember Paul's great ambition to know Christ in Philippians 3, verse 10. Joy comes from that knowing Christ. It comes from our relationship with the Lord. It is joy in the Lord, and it is joy of the Lord. And so if we're not with the Lord, we're not going to have the joy of the Lord. And so Paul says his ambition is to know Christ at any cost. He says, I consider everything lost so that I can know him. Why? He's going after the greater joy, and he's going to the source of it. 
He's prioritizing everything in his life so he could be with God, so he can know Christ, so he can grow in him, so his capacity for joy is stretched out so he can experience more joy. In Psalm 16, we're told, the psalmist prays to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist knows that in his heart, he's a half-hearted creature, too easily pleased. And so his joy is half-hearted. There's only, you know, half experience of joy. But in God, there is fullness of joy. At the right hand of God, where Christ is seated after his ascension, where he rules us at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. So to know Christ is to be on the path of greater and greater joy. God is the source of all of it. He is the happy God in whose image we are being restored in Christ. To put it simply, the closer you are to the Lord, the greater your joy is. Now remember, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, second only to love. And as we commune with God, as we behold Him in the Scriptures, as we worship Him personally or together, as we talk with Him in prayer, the Spirit bears the fruit of joy in our lives. We become more and more like Him. And so the Spirit molds us and shapes us and He increases our capacity for joy and He fills us with joy. So my question to you, are you pursuing God the source of all joy. Now, if you do that, if you pursue God, and if you reject the joylessness of legalism, and if you put the lesser joys in their proper place and pursue greater joys, if you do that, I believe you will be able to rejoice always in all circumstances. And there are many people in this church that do that. And that I look at and I say, how can they rejoice now? And yet, they do. Because they know the source of all joy. They have rejected the joylessness of legalism and they have put the proper, in the, their proper place the lesser joys of this life. Your joy will be mixed with sorrow, but it will be joy nonetheless. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me finish by saying that this command to rejoice always certainly includes the present moment. Are you ready to rejoice in the Lord now, right now? If you're a believer today, are you going to make the necessary changes to prioritize joy in your life today, this morning? Are you going to take it seriously? And if you are not a believer, I want to call you to embrace Christ by faith today. Because your greatest sorrows are consoled in Jesus. And your greatest joys are achieved in Him. The man of sorrows is your source of eternal joy. Would you come to Christ today?